Hello, and welcome to Make Mine Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Jana Hill. And I'm Elias Rosner, and today we're looking at the rise, fall, and possible rise again of the Marvel Cinematic Empire. Excelsior, like to the max. Yes, to the max. This was not originally on our, I don't even know what to say, like, timeline like we were not expecting to be talking about the mcu again for quite a while maybe ever who knows but this fall a book came out called mcu the reign of marvel studios written by joanna robinson dave gonzalez and gavin edwards and i started reading it i'm like we have to talk about this book It is like 420 pages of content with an additional 80 pages of footnotes and an index. So quite a lot, quite a lot of research. And Jaina has not read it. No, I have not read it. I mean, the scheduling this episode uh, when to record was kind of um, thorny because I've got I've got a lot going on personally. But um, we decided that maybe an interesting format would be um, if I came in blind about the book and Elias kind of walked me through it, and that way uh, he can tell me what he learned. Because it's not like we're new to the topic of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. No, no. <laughs> Suffice that to would, say. That would not be uh, true. It would not be true to say, oh, we've never heard of this MCU thing. But, you know, we think about Marvel a lot. We think about very whatever we're doing with these these movies. So there's a lot of discourse about them. Before we get into that and before we kind of start talking about the book, do you want to briefly talk about one of the writers, Joanna Robinson? Oh, well, it's just that um, I I, when I I, this book completely came out by surprise to me and I was like, yeah, of course, there's a book on the MCU. And it was only after we agreed upon your format and my life was kind of uh, getting real uh, explosive Mm -hmm. that um, I noticed that the book, one of the co-authors is Joanna Robinson, uh, whose work I'm familiar with from The Ringer which is um, made originally of a bunch of sports writers kind of turned pop culture writers and Mm -hmm. um, has added to my theory that uh, it's always fun to read a sports writer writing about anything because they can turn anything into like statistics and predictions and all that good stuff. (laughs) That's that's kind of true. I I feel like there are fewer statistics and predictions in this than than one would expect. Right. Well, and uh, Joanna Robinson was uh, I think she was always on the culture beat more than um, the sports mm-hmm. beat, although I, I know she's a sports fan. But um, she had a podcast about a bunch of different pop culture things, including Game of Thrones at one point and Star Wars. And at one point they covered uh, the MCU. And that was kind of where I fell off that podcast anyway, because it was getting very close to like movies that had come out recently. And uh, yeah, just like the nostalgia wasn't getting satisfied in that mm. same way. It was it wasn't scratching that same itch. Not nah, but but uh, I really like Robinson and I am happy that uh, her work has moved you so. Yeah. And I think we might circle back to to that feeling you were having by the end of of this. (laughs) But before we get there, the other two uh, co-writers, I don't know so much about uh, Dave Gonzalez is credited as both a podcaster and a New York Times and Guardians writer and a Guardians Guardian writer. I was going to say. And Gavin Edwards is a more traditional book author um, who wrote The Tao of Bill Murray. So my guess would be Gavin Edwards really helped them make it a book. 
uh, help them keep it working as a book instead of, you know, a podcast. And they all kind of work together to do the research and, and whatnot, because a lot of this book is taken from firsthand interviews that the authors did with various people for this book. They pulled from, you know, sources on the web, uh, you know, other documents, other books that have been written. But primarily, this is a book written from, you know, interviews, which I find really interesting. Yeah, right off the bat, that's interesting. So like, uh, this is original interviews. I imagine there's a lot of like non-disclosure agreements being uh, signed. And that probably... yeah influences uh, who can say what about what. Speaking of, the intro chapter essentially admits and talks about the process of of making this book. And what ideally I wanted this to be was a tell-all of the MCU, is an oral history, getting into all of the, like, really good and really bad. Kind of like, um, have you ever read um, Marvel The Untold Story? No, I haven't. That book's really interesting because that's the unauthorized history of Marvel Comics. So it is not with the blessing of the people Mm. who are necessarily involved. And it takes kind of a historical lens that uh, puts, you know, certain figures uh, in a critical light in a way they hadn't before. Really interesting, really good book. Mm -hmm. And I imagine they tried to set out to do something similar with this. But um, Disney is uh, so much more mercenary about uh, agreements like that, that it probably was much harder to get stuff published. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They they have a line early on where they said for the first few months, you know, Disney was largely hands off. They were able to get interviews basically as they went and, you know, didn't have to worry about anything. But then the more they talked to people, Disney started literally telling them, stop talking to these people. <laughs> so let me see if I can find the quote. Um it's on the first couple pages. Yeah. But like, so Disney blacklisted them as they were doing their research. Yeah, they said, um, oh, no, when we began work on this book, Marvel Studios didn't obstruct us for the first few months. Then we started getting word that Disney was asking people not to talk to us. But they say despite that, they still got to conduct hundreds of interviews with a number of people, some very important, um, some you know lower on the totem pole, others tangentially related to, but, you know, physically there uh, for various events. And yeah, it, it, it makes for an interesting combination where you can tell when a film either broke so bad that they were able to get a lot of dirt on it or a book, a, a film that, you know, they were really tight lipped about because they don't want people to know, you know, what was going on or, you know, it went actually pretty well. And you can you can also feel when people are talking whether or not, you know, maybe they signed an NDA, maybe they just don't want to get on the bad side of any future employers. Um, and the book where I think it, it really struggles is getting the everyday people, lighters, gaffers, costume makers, those kinds of voices and, um, you know, approaches and, and, and insight. Uh, we get a lot of studio execs. We get a lot of heads. We get a lot of actors, um, with, you know, with big, big names versus, you know, the character actor that was on set for three or four movies as the Chitari Warriors or something. Wait, actually, now that you're pitching that, that sounds awesome. Yeah, Pro- that would, probably that would some be cool great. stunt man that does the Doug Jones thing with prosthetic makeup. That's, yeah, that sounds great. Give me that book. But no, right. I want to hear. So what's interesting is I feel like I know a bunch of the more famous stories in the MCU with the production end, like mm-hmm. Edgar Wright's troubled relationship and then him bowing out of Ant-Man and what that did to those movies. 
and like uh, I know a bunch of what went on went on with the um, heads of Marvel and Ike Perlmutter after the Disney sale and mm-hmm. his relationship to the Trump administration. Like oh, these boy, are all yeah. uh, stories I encountered. But the way you were talking about this book, I'm kind of uh, interested to see if there's a bunch of juicy stuff that I didn't know as well. Yeah. So let's let's get started. And the other the other, I guess, top line takeaway is the first two phases or I guess pre MCU and phase one get the bulk of the book. Probably about half the book is phase zero, as they term it, which is everything pre Iron Man. And then phase one, a lot of attention to all of these films and these these eras and then after that, it, it gets a little slimmer, which I think is in part due to Disney stonewalling. The more sure. Disney had control of it, the more we got into more of like what it became, the more they were like, uh-uh, you can't talk about this. And because they have more control of the narrative through from start to finish, less information is out there in independent sources, in discussions, in like contemporary sources as well. That would be right. my guess. Yeah, that 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 all makes sense to me. And mm-hmm. that's a sensible way to approach it, too, because um, each of the movies leading up to the first Avengers movie is like uh, so many wild swings that then paid off so much that we're living on this side of things where we're all uh, sick of the wild swings. Yeah, yeah. Or rather, they, they keep on doing the same things that felt like wild swings. I'm getting ahead of myself, though. Yeah. So well, let's talk um, phase zero. So. What's the first Marvel movie? I think we recorded an episode about it. Uh, we might have, but the beginning of the book actually doesn't start with the first Marvel movie. It gives us a brief history of Marvel Comics. How did that come about? Where, you know, a few pages starting from Atlas and Timely, and it kind of creates this parallel between the you know, almost fall of Marvel Comics right at the beginning when it moved from Atlas to Marvel, they almost went bankrupt. And then also the same thing with Marvel Studios, going from near bankruptcy, actually bankruptcy bankruptcy, to turning it around and becoming the, the juggernaut that it became. Crashing through walls, starring in movies, everyone's favorite. No, need more juggernaut movies, personally, and put D-Cell in them. <laughs> we love you know, D-Cell on this podcast. We we do stand a D cell here, yeah. So the beginning of the the book starts with uh, a discussion of Marvel Studios, and then gets into what was then called Marvel Productions. Stanley goes to Hollywood in 1980 uh, and tries to make a whole bunch of movies. I think the Spider Man one's the one that gets the farthest. Uh, eventually, well, Spider Man is not actually part of this initial batch. Oh, um, really? The initial batch is. I can find it. I think my notes got all messed up. Perlman. Why is this all talking about Stan? Um, I I think I know a little bit about this from um, the Marvel, the untold story, because that goes yeah. into the early 2000s. I mean, I think that concludes with the Disney merger is the end of that book. But mm-hmm. uh, because it's so interested in the publication history of Marvel, uh, Stanley long had Hollywood dreams. And, and here he is finally, um, like shooting his shot and it does not work out for him if i know my story okay here it is it got it got buried yes and they were pulling from from marvel the the untold story where the first 
like real Marvel movie or, or property was the Incredible Hulk TV show with this real banger of a line that they uh, put in saying that why they changed the name from uh, Bruce to uh, David Banner. Yeah. Because apparently Bruce made him sound, quote, sound homosexual. Ah, that was the reason. And apparently Lee shot back and was like, what? I'm so confused. (laughs) That's a great, uh, A, that's a great response from Stan Lee. What? Yeah. And B, um, I I like that, uh, yeah, Stan Lee being baffled by that is the most polite thing he could have done, actually. Yeah, the the studios making deciding that that was an important change is is very silly and they had the in the back there's an entire paragraph just going a little bit more detail into like the actual quotes and the discussions of that but yeah lee moved out there tried to get a bunch of his the properties adapted into films but no one wanted to make the films instead they wanted to make animated tv shows which is how spider-man and his amazing friends came about stanley hated that show because yeah, I'm I'm just old enough that they were showing reruns of it when I was a little kid. Yeah, they, he was he was real mad at that. He's like, why would you team people up with Spidey? Spidey can stand on his own. <laughs> OK, funny, sure, whatever. Yeah, funny takeaway, Stan. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to make a Doctor Strange movie with Robert Zemeckis. Uh, um, and when Zemeckis X-Men, was still good. Mm-hmm. An X-Men uh, written by Roy Thomas and Jerry Conway, but they didn't happen. Basically, Marvel Productions was more successful at adapting other uh, people's properties, G.I. Joe, Muppet Babies, than his own <laughs> than his own stuff. They only ended up making three films, the Dolph Lundgren Punisher, an American Yugoslav co-production for Captain America and Howard the Duck. That's the one that I was thinking of. I had forgotten about that. And there's the there's like a Roger Corman Fantastic Four or something like that. That's later. That's later. That's, that's later. That is um, that is a story in and of itself. We'll get there. We'll get there in oh a second. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Uh, okay. This is where we introduce and then kind of drop off uh, Margaret Loesch, who, who becomes president of Marvel Productions and was helping Stan pitch films. One of the, the things about this book that I really like, though, is that they keep bringing in all of these additional people. They name them. They, they kind of show you the connections between various aspects of um, Hollywood life and just like casually introducing various names that we may have heard about, they may not have heard about. It, it, it gives it texture. It makes it feel, well, more like an actual oral history and not just, you know, the Stan Lee story. Yeah. And that that's always uh, like a, a benefit of doing a historical kind of uh dive into this thing is you just mm-hmm. notice the names that keep coming up actually because this person was at every single meeting they just didn't have a big title yeah so after this the chapter kind of goes into more of marvel comics's history and how it how we got to current day or mid 90s ownership i'm gonna run through this because i found it very fat interesting yeah. So the Perfect Film and Chemical Corporation, which bought up Marvel, uh, they became Cadence Industries. They were liquidated in 1986, and Marvel was acquired by New World Pictures, which was owned by Roger Corman. And in 1989, sold to Ronald Perlman, who uh, was known as the Raider because he would buy up companies and 
promptly run them into the ground. A practice that is now just uh, common in today's American economy. Yeah, there's an entire industry around it. But this was at least, at least one guy doing it. Let's just, uh, no relation to uh, beloved um, makeup and sci-fi actor Ronald Perlman. No, uh, this is Perelman, P-E-R-E-L-M-A-N. Got to get that extra E in there. So he, fascinatingly, the reason why Marvel Comics basically tanked under him was because, well, he was kind of a, he was shitty at his job, but he kept buying up poor acquisitions, uh, including, I think uh, it wasn't Topps baseball cards, but it was a baseball card company, which just so happened to coincide with the baseball strike uh, in 1989, 1994-1995 baseball strike, which canceled the World Series. Um, he had So he had purchased Fleer and Skybox, those were the trading card companies, and Panini, you, the, the Italian publisher, uh, at least here in, in um, America, unless there are multiple Paninis, which is possible. But, I mean, uh, my first thought goes to the delicious uh, tomato and cheese treat. Mm-hmm. So after that, uh, you know, they declare bankruptcy. It gets bad. And uh, Perlmutter promptly sells off Marvel to Carl Icahn. Do you know who Carl Icahn is? No, I don't can't say that I do. So he is... He gets the name, apparently. He is the guy who's been cited as the inspiration for Gordon Gecko in Wall Street. That makes sense. Because yeah. this is also, this is an era where the Marvel executives are all, like, uh, having crazy hotel parties. And there's cocaine everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they basically, he, he had bought up TWA, the airline, the appliance company, Japan, and tried to get U.S. Steel and Pan Am in hostile takeovers. Not a great guy. So it turns it turns up in eventually into um, a fight between Iken and Perlman, uh, Perlman over who could own Marvel. Eventually, Iken wins. And at this point, we enter Ike Perlmutter and Toy Biz. Uh, no one wants to talk about this guy. No one wants to talk about him. He is spooky. He's famously reclusive. Uh, most of the stories that we get about Ike Perlmutter are like whisperings, and really they only got once he was finally fired from Marvel in 2023, which is wild. If you uh, Google his name, uh, well, now there's no there. Mm-hmm. Now there now there's no uh, picture on his. Uh, wikipedia page but it used to be a picture from like a long time ago like taken before digital cameras and that was the only picture of him because he famously uh calls for hits to destroy pictures that are taken of him yeah they they don't really talk about that part in the book but they do say they're like he's he's so reclusive he showed up to the premiere of uh, uh i think it was the avengers so either the avengers or iron man um and he was he snuck in the back with a fake mustache and glasses uh, so that no no one would see him. I mean, okay, like uh, you get one comedy part in Perlmutter. I, um, I, yeah, I've heard all sorts of unsavory uh, Perlmutter rumors. There, people say he used to carry a gun into the office and talk about taking it out, but not actually take it out. Woof. No, that they they try their best not to not to kind of dwell on too much of him outside of anything specifically dealing with Marvel. Uh, this is also the point where I was like, wow. 
there are a lot of Jews here, and this book is full of them. So many Jews, so many rich Jews, and a lot of really shitty rich Jews, which yeah. sucks to hear, um, and sucks even more because when it's true. But it kind of also shows just how intertwined comics and you know the American Jewish experience is. Totally. As well as Hollywood. It's it's very it's very interesting to me how many people at like all levels show up and it's just like, oh yeah, there's there's a really Jewish name. <laughs> and speaking well, and part of, of part mm-hmm. of it is that Perlmutter was uh uh Israeli. He's from Israel. Yep. Yitzhak Perlman. <laughs> right. But not the um the famous musician. Oh I'm sorry, Pearl Mutter. Yitzhak Perlmutter. Uh and he uh well he bought up Toy Biz. I'm not going to get into the details. I find him interesting. I don't think anyone else. <laughs> I well, I think you are gravely mistaken. I think everyone finds him interesting because of how what a mysterious figure he is, and because of how like clearly villainous he turned out to be through this entire story. Just like any success that happened for the Marvel movies is uh, despite this guy's efforts, not because of them. Oh yeah, yeah. He he really shows up later in that way. But before he basically made his money, he 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 at first made his money by by working in uh, Jewish cemeteries to read Kaddish. He was like that was what he was paid to do. That's what he, how he made money in the in the fifties or in the sixties. I I've heard this about this. I've heard about him actually. Yeah, he bought Odd Lot Trading, which was basically a discount liquidator store they bought up old stock resold it for cheap uh and then turned that into toy biz uh when he bought up coleco the, now, the i remember toy, toy biz stores because my grandma taking me at the mall that's a nice memory and that's mm-hmm. also where like uh, i could buy like uh x-men action figures or like secondhand game boy cartridges mm. mm-hmm. but but did toy biz was that part of like another Toy company? Did they acquire a bigger company or something? Do I? So what happened was, uh, Odd Lot bought up uh, Char- the the Charon Toy Company, which became Toy Biz. They were uh, they they got it was in Canada. It was a Canadian company, uh, and then they got the DC superhero license uh, for for toys. It wasn't another toy company. Eventually, I think it became one. Toy Biz currently exists, but it is not owned by any of the previous people. It's a completely different company. It's probably owned by some random private equity firm. Yeah. But yeah, that's where that's kind of where he steps in because one of his head of toy design who really made a name for himself with a lot of these these um dc toys was avi arad another you know israeli who really loves toys he loved comics he helped them get the marvel toy license he he um negotiated that with marvel prior to their the whole bankruptcy stuff which is how they were able to get a really really good deal for making these um toys and Avi Arad is there's going to be a bunch of these names that uh, I feel like I'm most familiar with from seeing their name three times in the credits of mm-hmm. every, of 25 movies that I have watched a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Victoria Alonso being a, another one I can think of off the top of my head. Yep. 
But so, um, so yeah, this is all the like, corporate merger stuff and where the power players are like coming into power. What year are we at now? We're in the late 90s? We're in the late 90s. The book jumps around a little bit. Um, we're in 1992 because we, we jumped back with, with Toy Biz uh, and all of uh, Avi Arad making, uh, to- making his toys and, and, and figuring out kind of the basically how pricey, how important this stuff was uh, for them, at least. And he basically says to Ike, he's like, we should when when Marvel goes into bankruptcy and it looks like Carl Icahn is going to be getting getting the company, he's like, we should buy them right now because the rights to Spider-Man alone are worth more than any of them are offering for the entirety of Marvel Comics. And He's back like, in this time, I feel like uh, IP wasn't traded around as a resource as commonly as it has become. Correct. Yeah. I So Iken had wanted to buy um, th- Marvel for $385 million and its stock had previously been valued at $4 billion during the, the height of the speculator boom, which is wild. And Arad that is, is wild. Arad is basically like Spider-Man itself is a billion-dollar industry. Don't I let mean, this guy buy it. When I was a kid, I mean, I watched, there was a Spider-Man cartoon, which I loved. Mm-hmm. And there was all this merchandising. I loved uh, the toys. When the PlayStation game came out in the late 90s, I was so jazzed. The first one, the, based on the comics before the movies. Mm-hmm. Just like uh, I, yeah, he is right. But uh, I just wanted Spider-Man shit as a kid. And if Spider-Man's not making money, it's because they're not putting him on enough stuff. Yeah, correct. So that's the end of chapter one. I'm going to start speeding this up because there are 30 chapters in the whole book. Yeah, we can't. uh... We can't spend a lot, a lot of time. But chapter two is kind of focusing on now that. Toy Biz has the the movies and the licenses. What are they doing with it? So we open first on uh, Fantastic Four, which is the Roger Corman version. The basic story is Bernd Eichinger, who is a German filmmaker, got the rights in the 1980s and was given until the end of 1992 to start production on a film. He started production on a film. Roger Corman made it. It was on like the shoestringiest of shoestring budgets, but they finished it. Um, it was allegedly not very good. Uh, and when Avi Arad got wind of this uh, and they had, you know, purchased the Marvel comics, he arranged for basically the Roger Corman film to be bought out, the contract to be bought out, the film to be delivered to him, all the negatives, and allegedly he burnt them all. I've it seen, sounds like they don't really know if he actually burnt them all, but that's the story. I, I've seen um, uh, like mm-hmm. uh, grainy clips of it on YouTube before. Yeah. So the stretchy people... effects are kind of delightful. <laughs> they Oh, it, yeah. So they have bootleg um, versions probably pulled from some some print at some point. But yeah, they they did not want that being released. There was uh, he was afraid it would taint the brand. And I mean, he's totally right. We've now seen what a tainted brand looks like. And, <laughs> what does it um, look like? What does it look like? It looks like what it looks like right now. Nobody likes the brand. Just uh, yeah, that's true. How many kids um, are buying uh, Rocket Raccoon folders on Back to School Day this year as opposed to ten years ago? Yeah, yeah. It's it's. I mean. 
we'll probably talk about it a little bit, but just look at the Marvels. Look at what happened to that one. What a that shame. one, I, I I have my own theories on that one, and I think that this is uh, what is known as the glass cliff. Mm. Uh, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. All right. We'll so that Fantastic that. Four movie by Roger Corman. Roger Corman, noted schlockmeister, who just like uh, was very involved in um, like uh, pulpy stuff in the 70s and horror mm-hmm. stuff and um, like softcore porn stuff. Oh, yeah. Our favorite. But yeah, just like a, here's like a sleazy guy putting together a sleazy production um, of this like tw- teen brand. That is what they're going for, I think. Mm hmm. And I know what movie of theirs is the first to get like a little bit of shine in box office returns. But is there anything else in the 90s? In uh, no. But in 1996, they rename Marvel uh, Marvel Films, which was what they were calling it at the time, to Marvel Studios. uh, And they kind of rebrand what they're doing, which is essentially they do all the prep for these movies uh, and then they bring it to studios to try and get funding to make the movies. Um, you know, which is a great idea, actually. Um, mm-hmm. Now that every now that all the uh, Hollywood studios are acquiring each other until there is only um, like Amazon studios. Yup. It's like uh, it's nice when there was a company that's like, we are going to try to like produce and make films and we're going to get together with the distributor who's got like lots of reach and funding. <laughs> Just like oh, yeah. having everybody do their jobs instead of making everyone's job belong to the same guy it's i'm nostalgic for this movie making uh ecosystem yeah it's 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 hard to stay positive even when like especially when reading this thing the more you hear you more it's like wow this is bad this is real bad well you can see uh who is making the good choices and who is making the bad choices throughout this thing so Which is now, I, especially interesting because I don't think it's as cut and dry. That That is interesting. Yeah. Now I'm mm-hmm. going to share a memory with you. Do it. In the year 2000, I was a kid at summer camp. And every summer um, we would head over to a nearby drive-in movie theater. Okay. I, I, the summer before, I remember seeing uh, Muppets, Muppets in Space. <laughs> and, <laughs> and this and this time in, in 2000, we saw the first X-Men movie. The one that mm. introduces uh, Hugh Jackman as Wolverine. And uh, mm-hmm. that blew my mind because I was a huge X-Men kid and remain okay. a huge X-Men kid. But X-Men is the first uh, Marvel movie that I feel like uh, was like a hit, right? No. You're, no, what am I forgetting? No, you are forgetting, which is very fun. Well, first... The X Men cartoon comes out, which is part of the part the first part of Avier Rod's push to try and get into movies and TV. Again, TV really picked it up for cartoons. The X Men cartoons a success, and then with this blindsided everyone, Blade, Wesley Blade, Snipes of course. Blade I in nineteen ninety eight. I forgot that was in the nineties. I yeah. can't mix up the order in my head. Yeah. Blade did so well that it helped Avi Arad make his case to movie studios that people would come out for superhero stuff and that they could make movies based on these various characters. And notably in Blade, I feel so Blade, there was a attempt at a TV show. I remember in the late 80s, I think. And if you look at a Blade comic before the movie, he kind of looks like Robin Hood. <laughs> he's wearing like kind of like a green tunic and he's got like a weird little hat. 
Okay. And what's so interesting me about that is the narrative where in that first Blade movie, now he looks like a cool Wesley Snipes guy with like mm-hmm. a leather jacket and sunglasses and uh, and just like what was cool in the 90s. And that became so much like uh, the movie was just a Wesley Snipes action movie about the character Blade. True. And uh, and that and that's um, where for me as a fan, I remember the dynamic of Marvel Studios being like, OK, they're going to make movies out of comic book characters, but they're really going to make like movie star movies. And they're like kind of sort of related to the comic book characters or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And interestingly, Blade wasn't produced by Marvel. It was done by New Line Cinema uh, and knocked Saving Private Ryan out of first place of the box office. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and Marvel didn't really make any money because they didn't have the the toy rights for that one. Or the, the toys didn't sell so great, even though the film did pretty good. But like I said, it helped Avi Arad make his case, and he then tried to get a Spider-Man film made. Which, okay, this story is bonkers, the names that are going to pop up. But first, more rights talk, because I find this fascinating. So Spider-Man had been sold to uh, Menachem Golan and Canon Films in 1985, which went bankrupt in 1990. Uh, and then production company Carl Loco bought the Spider-Man movie rights from Golan. Uh, and this was also when the X-Men started getting more popular because of the cartoon. So they approached, um, they wanted to make you know an X-Men film. And so they approached James Cameron. And then Chris Claremont says, I heard you like Spider-Man. And suddenly the X-Men deal with James Cameron went away. And there was supposed to be a Spider-Man film with James Cameron starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Arnold Schwarzenegger as Doc Ock. Wait, that actually sounds amazing. And Arnold Schwarzenegger should still play Doc Ock in something? I think that would have been really fun. However... This is when things get litigious, uh, because apparently Menachem Golan uh, didn't get any credits, and his deal had stipulated that he would get producer credits, uh, and then he sued, Carloco sued Viacom and Columbia Pictures for their various broadcast and home video rights, and MGM sued everyone for fraud, because they had inherited all of Canon's rights. The whole thing was a clusterfuck, and yeah, that's the reason is what why. I was going to say. That's the reason why um, this version never got made. James Cameron and Leonardo DiCaprio moved on to Titanic and the rights and and the deal kind of, um, you know, went away. Eventually, the litigation ended. Spider-Man got the movie rights back or (laughs) Spider-Man. Marvel got the Spider-Man movie rights back, except for uh, Columbia, which still had the home video rights. Uh, So basically, Sony purchased the Mar- the movie rights from Marvel for $10 million plus 5% of the gross and half of the toy revenue. So basically Marvel would keep 5% of the gross of every Marvel movie and they would get a cut of all any toy sales for this, which for Ike Perlmutter, Mr. Toy Man, was a great deal. That's kind of what his uh, investment is in the first place with these, right? Yeah. Now, Marvel at first offered, told Sony, no, we want Spider-Man back in full. We will give you literally everyone else from Marvel for the movie rights to Spider-Man. People love Spider-Man. People love Spider-Man. That was their counteroffer. Sony turned them down, which I don't know if that was the right move or the wrong move. We don't know, but we do know that it would have changed everything. 
And this is where we move into uh, the X-Men chapter or the X-Men section. They approach Brian Singer to try and make this film. uh, And he he ultimately makes it. Uh, Where is it? Brian Singer, uh, hot off of his hit movie, The Usual Suspects in the 90s, uh, now known to be a notorious creep and not very talented dude. Yep. Yep. It quite, quite, quite sucks. Uh, But this is also where we enter Kevin Feige. Kevin Feige was the an assistant to Lauren Schuler Donner, who is a producer, and she produced most of I want to say Sony's. Um, I think she produced most of Sony's films for. I'm blanking on the name. What the studio? Like the, yeah, yeah, no, uh, not the Spider-Man. She produced a, a lot of the superhero films uh, in this era. Schuler Donner, the wife of Richard Donner, Superman director. Yeah, her name pops up a lot here, not because she was directly involved, but because, well, at this point she was eventually she wouldn't be. But like I said, Kevin Veige is here. Um, The X-Men script has a bunch of wild names attached to it. David Hayter, Joss Whedon. I know about David Hayter. Uh, He's in the movie. He makes a cameo. Oh, yeah, that's fun. I just that dude's solid stink. I'm going to watch him in anything. That's true. He he pops up a few more times, probably because he's, you know, here. Jeff Johns shows up because apparently Feige and Johns work together at Schuler Donner Productions. That, that's a name I wasn't expecting to hear. <laughs> right. Uh, this is kind of where we get Feige's introduction. And the book kind of takes on this very interesting thread because it's Marvel's story but it's really Kevin Feige's. So every time we check back in with him, you kind of see his arc through the book. And this is his origin story. He started off as an assistant learning filmmaking and film production from probably one of the greatest producers here. Maybe not the most prolific, the most high profile, but she knew her stuff. And she helped produce the X-Men films. Uh, and I believe she ended up doing X-Men made bank. So they were like, let's make Spider-Man finally. I have a, a very fond memory of being on vacation with my uh, aunt and uncle and my cousins and my older cool cousin who I didn't even know was into comic book stuff was just mm-hmm. like very patiently explaining to her dad who Wolverine was. <laughs> and and I remember this is because like uh, going into that movie, I'm like, of course, Wolverine, he's got the claws and he does says he doesn't want to be a team player, but he's so sad about it all the time. And she was going on about like because his mutant power is healing, they put um, super metal on his skeleton. And I couldn't <laughs> believe that that's what she was leading with to like uh, convince her dad that Wolverine was a worthwhile endeavor. <laughs> I mean, that is I think I think that could get some some subset of people into the theaters like I want to see the metal guy punch things. Not my uncle. My uncle is like is like a gentle doctor who's very soft spoken and makes uh, very like punny dad jokes. OK, I'm sure okay. he's watched a Marvel movie or three in his time now. But at the time, just uh, I was like, uh, no, cousin, this sounds much too stupid. Mm. Yeah, and it's not that's... stupid. Is the other half of that, and it's not stupid. Wolverine is cool. He's no, awesome. Wolverine I love is Wolverine. cool. Just, uh, but it's nostalgia is going to be coming back to me about where and when I saw these movies. 
I think that's part of the the fun of kind of revisiting, especially like this era of stuff. Uh, you know, for us, pre MCU films are so wildly different and such a such time capsules. They all are, but definitely these. Uh, and this is also where Amy Pascal, longtime Spider-Man producer, first shows up when she was still at Columbia Pictures. She was trying to find her director and she thought that Cameron's script was too much, too edgy. So they wanted it more teenage romancy. Uh, they got uh, David Cope to rewrite the movie as more teenage romancy. Uh, and they tried to find a director. They approached Chris Columbus, David Fincher. Tim Burton apparently told her that he was a DC guy and didn't even schedule a meeting. It's wild. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure during uh, the production of Batman, he claimed to be a Marvel guy. So Tim Burton's talking out both sides of his face. Just a little bit. This was also, you know, early 2000s. This was like, actually, you know, not August 2001. Uh, I mean, August 1st, 2000. I think it was earlier than that. But those are the dates kind of nearby in the book. Uh, and that's when they approached Sam Raimi. And one more fun name that you probably won't recognize. I didn't recognize, but it. I like to read as many of the random names as we get as we can. Uh, Laura Ziskin, who produced uh, with this for the Spider-Man franchise in for script development and production, you know, until t- uh, 2001 when she or 2011 uh, when when she died of uh, cancer at 61. Um, not not a name that I'm familiar with. No, but these are the kinds of things that that I like about this book. The, those are the kinds of people that you you don't hear about that often, and I totally. like that they make space for them. Absolutely. Uh, and the rest of the chapter is is just being like, here's how Spider Man got produced. So it's funny that the reason they went away from Cameron is because he was too edgy, and then they hire Raimi, who like to this day. <laughs> yeah has like a very edgy <laughs> reputation. Um, he's like lots of fun and he's goofy well, and, and obviously his Spider-Man mm-hmm. movies are great and, and perfect toned actually, but like he's known for doing like a uh, schlock horror three stooges routines. Yeah. I think they felt that he was, he was funny enough and could bring enough of the heart. Whereas yeah, it was the right Cameron, call. Cameron's script because Cameron had already moved on. They were like, he yeah. they thought his script was too. Yeah. Oh no. To Titanic. Yeah, that was a oh, failure. Yeah. Just, just like the, a, the voyage. What a bad move. But this was the saving grace that the, the company kind of needed. It made Spider-Man's success made so much money. Uh, and it, it, it essentially cemented his uh, approach to films at the time. And, then we get chapter three, which I've just titled the plutocrat chapter. This is where we just get all the like behind the scenes money deals, all sorts of stuff. The big takeaway from this was uh, David Maisel eventually becomes president of Marvel Studios. This is where he enters and he convinces Avi Arad and Perlmutter to keep the rights for all the characters instead of selling them off piecemeal as they had been doing. And produce the movies themselves. Uh, he, you know, he is first and foremost a businessman, and he frames this. And this was all of the um, motivation. This will allow them to sell more toys, 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 toys. It always comes back to the toys, especially in this era. So yeah, I don't think I because I, 
you know, I don't mm-hmm. have a uh, little kids in my home, but I don't see uh, toys selling like they the pieces of plastic seem a lot less enticing to kids that I do know. Yeah, and more so now merchandising than toys. Yeah. Like the merchant, the the merch, TV, uh, lunchboxes, TV, T-shirts, pants, pajamas. That's really what what it is. But the primary but focus, at least like in their figures. minds, yes. Toyetic toys. Um, that's the term that they they use all the time to describe like things that could become toys that will sell like hotcakes. And this is where we get the big Wells Fargo deal. This is did how not, the MCU Wells begins. Fargo is, I did not know Wells Fargo was involved in this right? operation. They approach Wells Fargo and they say, we want to borrow. I think it was like $500 million. Let me check. Let me see the. I mean, eventually me. the numbers are going to get like fake sounding. They they are going to get fake sounding. I think it was it was like five hundred and something million dollars in order to finance all of their new films. Uh, the da, 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 or did I did I write it wrong? Was it not Wells Fargo? No, Merrill Lynch. Um, it was still did not Lynch. know. Yeah, did not know we were getting like a big loan or something. Yeah, five hundred and twenty-five million dollars. So basically, the uh, you know the bank would, or I guess the investing company would give them that money, and they would put up ten characters for collateral, the rights to ten characters. I want to find the the names. I should have written the names down of which ones. Here it is. So here are the names that they put up for for sale. Captain America, the Avengers, like just the the whole thing, Nick Fury, Black Panther, Ant-Man, Cloak and Dagger, Doctor Strange, Hawkeye, Power Pack, and Shang-Chi. Of those, we've we've not gotten one TV or movie of all of those, and not for lack of trying. Is it Power Pack? Yeah. Oh, I like Power Pack. Yeah, the story of Power Pack is sad. I'm sure. But they get the money, and with that, the MCU begins. And with that, we're going to take our first break. Hello, podcast listeners. We're the hosts of the DC3Cast. I'm Zach. I'm Vince. And I'm Brian. Each week, we discuss most of the new releases from DC Comics, focusing mainly on Rebirth, Wildstorm, and Young Animal. We also look at the news of the week, discuss the film and television adaptations of DC material, and dig into industry rumors. We've also had a number of DC creators on our show, like Scott Snyder, Jim Lee, Christopher Priest, Steve Orlando, and Joshua Williamson. So, if you like Borat jokes, my wife, bad Dio impressions, this is bad, what the f***? And an in-depth look at DC each week, join us every Wednesday morning at multiversitycomics.com, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. Come get Jurgens. With us. And welcome back. We're talking M C U. Woo! You do. It's time. I'm excited. We've reached the beginning of phase one. Before we can get there, though, there is still a little bit of non-phase one stuff to cover. Uh, because we have to talk about what happened to Aviarod. And Iron Man's beginning, like what what movies were being picked, like how did they start to construct the MCU? Uh, and 
Ow. <laughs> I just punched the table. I'm sorry. Because you're emphatic about this. I, I remember seeing this. the trailer to Iron Man 1 like on YouTube in my freshman dorm room and mm-hmm. um, and being like, really? Iron Man is the Marvel hero they're making a movie out of next? Oh, well, it looks awesome. But like I was very surprised that it was Iron Man because Iron Man was always a C-lister to me. He's not the Hulk or Spider-Man. Yep. Yeah. So Avi Arad is now slowly moving out. He is leaving the company because David Maisel is kind of pushing him out. And Kevin Feige's star is ascending as the guy who's going to help make the MCU a thing, even though... Avi was kind of involved in the deal. It really was David Maisel who pushed for this for for getting the money and and putting up the characters and the two butted heads and Arad's way of making movies kind of fell out of uh, uh, favor with with Ike because they weren't made. They had to make deals with all these other companies. And they were losing money on the toy sales and, and other stuff just by virtue of not being the full owners of the rights. Uh, so he was like, nope, we're going with the MCU. And Arad uh, was, you know, kind of done. He he left. He formed his own uh, entertainment company. Uh, and his name still appears on all of these Spider-Man films. You'll see him all over the place. But this is where he kind of enter, uh, you know, leaves his or leaves the story for quite a while although he he did help produce ghost rider nicholas cage ghost rider nicholas cage ghost rider he, uh, he produced it but he wasn't allowed to be or he was a, he was an advisor at least on that one but he's he wasn't allowed to make any superhero or fantasy movies unless they were based on marvel properties as part of his uh non-compete agreement that's a wild thing to sign off on yeah, my guess is also because it's he was so integral. You can make the argument. It may have been for like five years, 10 years or whatever. But yeah, that's that's his departure. Uh, and now we start they start trying to figure out what movies are they going to make? Uh, you know, who do they want to approach or, or what characters are they going to try to do uh, for these? This Basically, they had a four picture deal. Uh, within four pictures, they had to make enough money to justify all of this and pay back the loan. The loan was also contingent on them trying to raise a third of the money for each book or for for each movie. So whenever it would be financed, they would raise up a th- up or they would try to raise about up to a third of the 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 money. Which I didn't really understand that part, but whatever. Yeah, I'm seeing the business maneuvers being maneuvered. Yep. And they start looking, they try to figure out who, what, what characters they want to adapt. And they're like, well, Iron Man, I'll get back to him in a second. Incredible Hulk, because his shit sold like gangbusters. And Ant-Man, because Edgar Wright wants to make him. And they like Edgar Wright. And they were approaching at this point, you know, auteur directors, because they needed to prove that this worked, that this whole thing would work. Yeah, Edgar Wright at this point, known for the Cornetto trilogy, Simon no. Pegg and Nick. No, not Before yet. Before that. Yeah, the, he, he was not really known for uh, all all of those. He might have been known for Shaun of the Dead only. I, th- I think Hot Fuzz hadn't even come out yet. 
Okay, well then he's known for Shaun of the Dead, which I remember everyone being like, oh, it's uh, it's a comedy, but it's also uh, really like uh, got a lot of pathos to it. This uh, He was like a real hot director uh, coming off of that. But I think moreover, it was that um, uh, Nick Frost and Simon Pegg became such Comic-Con mainstays after that, uh, after Shaun of the Dead. And they clearly were uh, earnestly there because it was fun for them. And I feel like that uh, really warmed Edgar Wright to comic book fans, even though I mm-hmm. uh, kind of understand Edgar Wright's comic book taste to be a little bit uh, off the Marvel DC path. I mean, just because he's calling a shot with Ant-Man, he's already being like, I won't do a mainstream superhero like the Hulk, only Ant-Man for Edgar. Oh, no, he loves Ant-Man. He That's we'll a weird pick. Him. We'll get to him. We'll get to this. It, it takes a while, sadly. But first, Iron Man. So they had just gotten Iron Man back, the rights, and they thought he would fit, fit well into a, a post 9-11 world uh, in kind of interesting ways because of his origins as kind of a, this in, this reaction, maybe not reaction, but the as an industrialist during the Vietnam era. Right. And that uh, kind of positions him in the modern day as like a Halliburton guy. Yeah. And, you know, the original creation of Iron Man was... I'm going to make a character you like out of someone that you should hate, which was because, you know, he's this war peddler. Right. And that's and the that's I, I remember him with as a kid is uh, the reason Iron Man was never a great protagonist to me was that um, he always like he's a fun guy for Spider-Man and the X-Men to push back against. And he's like great as an authority figure. Mm hmm. Um, But he's kind of interesting to pick as the guy to root for unless you have somebody whose natural charisma perfectly mirrors that because he, too, has a a faded luster and um, a lot of goodwill to buy back with the public. Yep. And that's part. That's why they got good old Robert Downey Jr. But I'll get to him in one second because we still have to talk about the 9-11 of it all. Okay. so. There's a whole section about what people are allowed to show in film and TV from Carl Rove. He wrote these six things for the entertainment industry. One, the U.S. campaign in Afghanistan was a war against terrorism, not Islam. Two, people can serve in the war effort and in their communities. Three, U.S. troops and their family need support. Four, 9-11 requires a global response. Five, this is a fight against evil. Six, children should be reassured that they will be safe. And then, like, half-heartedly, he was like, none of these efforts should be propaganda. Cool. Cool, uh, cool, 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 cool. Also, why is Carl allowed to make this call? Uh, this was in 2000, November 2001. He called oh, so just all of... The- yeah. He was like, this, is your res- this should be your response, the entertainment industry's response. And I think the entertainment industry has basically stuck with that since, in part because you can't get anything military related without DOD approval. And without and in order to not to get DOD approval, you can't disparage anything America. You know, you can't be seen doing those those things, which is why they had a whole scene in the cave with Yensid where he points to a bunch of um cases of weapons and he goes clinton bush and then he says stark saying like where did they come from well here's an american made bomb here's an american made bomb there's an american made bomb so they're threading a very uh, careful needle there to uh yeah that line got cut because the dod didn't like the implication 
Whoa, whoa. Uh, yeah. that's, so this is also, this is how Top Gun comes about in the 80s is uh, because of these DOD strictures. Mm-hmm. And this is also when we get that that scene of Amer- of Spider-Man flying on top of an American flag that was added in post because of <laughs> because of 9-11. I remember loving that shot. That was him. so comic booky. Yeah, it, I mean, it's a good shot. It's just and very I like hyper patriotic. Yeah, I'm going to defend every creative choice in Spider-Man 3, an excellent movie, uh, because also it's really fun because he's been wearing the black suit up until then. That's his first moment back in the red, red and blue. Oh, no, he doesn't. I mean, I guess they redid it in Spider-Man 3. No, this is Spider-Man 1, the first Spider-Man. Oh, my God. Um, I, I was thinking, of, yeah. Because uh, that Spider-Man... was supposed to to debut in the summer uh, or it, w- it was supposed to um, come out around 9-11. And they were like, sure, we, like need uh, to, we need to get, we need to quickly change this. Take out those shots of the Twin Towers. Uh, the end of um, Metal Gear Solid 2 also similarly has a disaster strike New York that they just took out like a month before the game ship. So it just the story suddenly jumps ahead five minutes with no. <laughs> oh no and, she, and <laughs> it's at the moment when the story is at its most surreal so you're just like okay i guess we're on a roof somewhere now i guess so uh this Much like is Spider-Man. Uh, so okay sorry i'm trying to collect my thoughts because the iron man chapter kind of goes all over the place just because there's so much about it and it's pretty well documented. Uh, they were apparently going trying to get tom cruise to be tony stark not Speaking bad. Top Gun, uh, but he was too expensive. Uh, they tried to get Johnny Depp. The less the said there, the better. They also approached sensible choice at the time. Uh, Jim Caviezel, who I I don't want to look up what he did in the book. Uh, he was recently in that terrible docu thing, Sound of Freedom, or whatever. Let's not call it a docu thing. It's a sort of a movie lionizing a uh, guy who goes on child trafficking safaris and then abandons orphans and foreign locales. And it's all fake, but they pretend it's real. Well, yeah, yeah. That's not the story of the movie, but that's what that guy's really like. Yeah. So Caviezel has been quietly uh, working with Mel Gibson and company for like a long time. I think he's uh, his loyalties are pretty clear. Yeah. Uh, They also wanted to try and get uh, Timothy Oliphant and Sam Rockwell. Briefly. Love Timothy Oliphant. I one of the cutest boys in the world. Yeah. So they didn't end up getting him because when Robert Downey Jr. auditioned, he walked into the room and they were like, that's Tony Stark. But they had to really lobby for him because Perlmutter was afraid that he would tank the movie by his reputation. He's uninsurable. Because, yeah, he's he was. His reputation was terrible at the time. He had been been in and out of rehab. He was he hadn't really been in a lot of big movies in a while, but they thought he was the best fit for the film. They they thought he w- was Tony Stark and he really is. He embodied the character. Yeah, that decision clearly worked out. Yeah. So they try to find a director. They're like who who could it be? They approach John Favreau, who at that time was known mostly for, you know, rom-coms and, and stuff. And he, you know, he says yes, and they run the movie basically like an independent film. Because what do they know from making movies? Which there's uh, precedent for, because uh, George Lucas did kind of similar with the Star Wars prequels. With the prequels? 
Yeah, the prequels, uh, there's no studios whatsoever. It's all just out of George Lucas's pocket. So uh, he runs it like an indie film. There's no studio oversight. There's no uh, guild rules of who does what. Mm. And the studio didn't really care because they didn't. I don't know if they didn't really believe in them. No, uh, George Lucas or Iron Man? No, no, no. Uh, Iron Man. Yeah. Iron Man. Uh, And this is where they they do a lot of the talk about the, the improv uh stuff like how did that come about uh why were they doing it apparently they were revising this thing like on set all the time uh they they didn't have a shooting script they produced the movie in 12 days uh that's why no, no, i'm sorry they produced a shooting script in only 12 days although Javar didn't stick to it there we go i misread the sentence well that's a little less wild but that's still a pretty crazy that's amount of time less wild. put a put a script an entire script out but yeah and then they don't even use the script yeah, they they changed it so much in part because Robert Downey Jr. really liked improv uh, and they would run through it. They'd be like they would improv stuff and then they would have to rewrite other scenes because something that worked really well on the page contradicted something else they had, had done in the plot. And they were able to do this in part because, you know, it was so it was so loosey goosey. They they were starting it. They didn't need to fit into anything else. And th- Jeff Bridges didn't really like this. He was like, man, I like to have my script and to read my lines. He's a Coen Brothers guy. Coen Brothers are notoriously uh, rigid with their script. They don't allow for any improv. If somebody says, "Uh, um, okay," all three of those words are written out in the script. Woof. Woof. I mean, you know, different uh, techniques for different performers, I suppose. I suppose. Uh, we get a little bit of a discuss of good old Terrence Howard as Rhodey, although we'll get more of a more of a discussion for that later. They didn't they they actually approached the character of Ho Yen Sid with care, which is kind of nice. They wanted to when they first were making Iron Man, they wanted to be a lot more critical of the war on terror and all of that. They really wanted to to turn the screws on that kind of the American approach to, you know, war and weapons selling and all of that. Like, and a lot of that does come through in the film, just mm-hmm. also uh, the opposite view comes through too. And kind of the miracle of that film is that it manages to be like a stupid uh, nationalist American movie and like a critical of Americans foreign policy movie all at once. Mm hmm. That's just a what a crazy I mean, I said needle to thread too many times, but that, that's what this movie feels like to me. <laughs> yeah. And and that's why they cast a, an, an Iranian actor to actually play Ho Yense, because they're like, we don't want to paint just like the Middle East as bad, which is what we've been doing for the last yeah. seven years or even before and since. So they were making the effort. Whether or not they fully succeeded is a different question. How much they, so, the they DOD really stepped it back? They certainly succeeded to an extent. How, yes. yeah, like, how much that extent is uh, subjective? Yeah. And, and I just wrote in my notes, guess who else makes an appearance? That's right. The WAG, WGA strike of 2008. How, who can forget <laughs> it? I was there for that. Yeah. And that's why the ending is the way it is, because they were like, we have to rewrite this ending real fast they wrote it and then the strike happened so they had to use and they used what they had which meant they couldn't do any more improv or whatever to fit to you know finish it off before the movie got released 
and you know it comes out and it's a huge hit uh and then the next chapter is all about sam jackson well yeah samuel uh, samuel l jackson what's he doing here well, Apparently, he's gonna become Nick Fury, but uh, he's he already a very successful and popular actor at this point. Makes mm-hmm. like three movies a year. So the book kind of details how they got Jackson to play Nick Fury, and in part, and uh, mostly, it was because one, he was a big comics fan, but also because uh, when Mark Millar and specifically Brian Hitch drew Ultimate Nick Fury, they modeled it as we we've known. We've talked about this. Uh, after Samuel L. Jackson, and because that kind of became the basis for a lot of, you know, these these early Marvel movies, the ultimate stuff in terms of aesthetics, at least, they were like, hey, why don't we just see if we can get Jackson to play the cameo? And this is where Feige's like really like angling to start building the MCU, but like underneath it all, he has to be very surreptitious because if he kind of comes out and says it, the whole thing could could blow up in his face, especially with the the money people. That's interesting at, that I that he had to keep it a secret. Yeah, and they really wanted this post-credit scene to be a secret. He's like, he doesn't want anyone to know until they see the movie and then can't say anything about like the big plan to build to the Avengers, in part because they weren't doing it because they were still need the proof of concept. But like that was his ultimate goal. He's like, I want to lay the groundwork for this. But if I start talking about it, that could ruin the project. Right. A lot of this seems obvious now, but I remember at the time, uh, like I did not stay till the end of the credits when I saw Iron Man one in theaters. And then I, you know, I was a freshman in college and all the other kids in school were like, oh, my God, did you hear this? And we were all my friends were into comics. So we had to go see it a second time. And I'm sure that that was a uh, success for those guys, too, that people were going to see the movie a second time because of how exciting this comic book reference at the end is. Mm hmm. Yeah. God, I forgot that Bill Jemis makes a, a sudden appearance here because he kind of helped make the Ultimate Universe show up because he wanted to blow everything else up and cancel the whole thing. I remember we talked about that, man. too, in an episode. Yeah, that man's a madman. That man is a madman. Um, I think uh, Brian Michael Bendis helped write the, yeah, he helped write the post credit scene. For, Which is for funny, Tony Stark. because the post credit scene is like like three lines or you know maybe six <laughs> lines of dialogue, but they are mm-hmm. like weirdly iconic because of how exciting that was for everybody. Yeah, and they were going to they try they tried to keep the whole thing a secret. Uh, they they did not quite succeed. Uh, at keeping it at, at hidden because Avi Arad started blabbing, blabbing his mouth out and in part made stuff up. But it turned out that some of it was true. Uh, and that that's how this, the secret started getting out. And they were pretty mad about that. Yeah. Yeah. They were not happy that the people that they were talking about it because they wanted Sam Jackson's appearance to be, you know, a big secret. This Surprise was a me. fun yeah, this was a fun little tidbit. In his contract, he is not allowed to run. He's not allowed to run? Correct. He says, like, in his contract, you will not make me run. If the script says, oh, oh, Nick Fury not that he's not runs, allowed to run. He said that, that uh, you can't make me run. Correct. He's like, if it says Nick Fury runs, I want that changed. Because he's 67 and he's like, I'm not doing any more running. That is so funny and smart and more actors should 
play that. Yeah. He, uh, spoilers for a little later, there are some moments when he has to run and he is very mad, but he does it. But well, he's like, you're lucky. They are lucky. Good sport, Samuel L. Yeah. Now, Incredible Hulk. What do you want to know about this movie? So I saw Incredible Hulk. Um, I was on jury duty. I got called for jury duty and I uh, sat in all day while like, you know, they show you the videos about our justice system and whatnot. Mm hmm. And then after about, uh, you know, like six hours of this, that someone comes in the room and is like they settled. You're free to go. And I was like, word. So I called my friends and down the street, there was a movie theater and we saw the Incredible Hulk movie. And I thought it was bad at the time. And I looked up who directed it and it was uh, Louis Leterrier, who mm -hmm. I think of as like a real uh, B-list action guy. He made a lot of Jason Statham movies that I think are fine. Mm -hmm. But that whole movie, I remember uh, not liking like the Iron Man movie, but uh, Tony Stark does show up at the end of that. And I was very excited for what that could have meant. Okay. So, yeah, this movie is probably one of the highest profile messes of the MCU, which kind of sucks because it would have been, yeah, it would have been a real problem if this, this movie had uh, tanked the whole project. But the good news, well, in part, to step ahead of it, both Iron Man and The Incredible Hulk because of their success, they actually ended up making uh, making back the Merrill Lynch money and was able to pay off their debt with just those two films. I think also with with Iron Man 2's success. But basically, they, you know, they had proven and blown out of all expectations. And they're like, well, this is a thing now. And this is great. But while they were making The Incredible Hulk, they we're looking to go in a different direction from Ang Lee's Hulk, which was kind of slow. It was very ponderous. It had its, um, it was very comic book inspired in its visuals. Uh, and, and then it was, it was a weird combination of, it was like a dreary tone with like really mm -hmm. bright campy visuals. And I feel like that always, uh, rub people the wrong way. That's a tough, uh, aesthetic yeah, to, a, to pull off. Tough sell, tough, uh, tough balance to hit. And, you know, they they wanted someone who was a little less introspective, which, as you said, is Louis the Terrier. And he, you know, he's an action guy. That's what he does. Doesn't really do the rest of the stuff. There's a part of That's the movie fine. where uh, Abomination throws something at a helicopter and the helicopter crashes and everybody on that helicopter dies unless you know their name. They all live. And I, destroyed, <laughs> and I was just like, oh, it's that, that kind of movie, huh? We're not even going to address this coincidence because, like, wh why would we? Well, you will see why. In part, so Zach Penn had written a script. Zach Penn's a name that'll pop up a few times, usually in the context of Zach Penn wrote a script. Then someone else came in and wrote a different script. Yeah, you see Zach Penn's name. He, he, did, he did the uh, X-Men movies. Yeah, uh, he gets rewritten all the time here. And <laughs> not because like his script was bad, but it's because... In this case, Ed Norton comes in and part of his contract is he gets writing and he gets input on every portion of the process. He will help rewrite the script. He will help with some of the directing. He will help with the edit, final edit. And this really uh, put Ed Norton's career on ice for a little while, I feel like. 
Yeah, he is very much characterized as a big diva, and he wanted a very ponderous movie, which I kind of... It's weird because I like some of the the ponderous bullshit that ends up in the movie, but because his film and the Terrier's film, and even to some extent Zach Penn's film, all clash with each other, the final edit is bad. Uh, It's just all over the place. In part also because the edit that Ed Norton wanted was, I think, going to be, I think it was close to three hours long. And the studio was like, no. So they went around him. Yeah, they went around him and re-edited the film without him. And he was so mad. He started bad-mouthing the the studio. He started talking out against it. And that was one of Kevin Feige's big no-nos. You don't talk shit about the movies publicly. And you don't talk shit about the studio publicly. And that, that in part, is why he never came back for the next movies. They were like, no, you're done. He burnt his bridge here. Uh, which I feel like is a decision I, I kind of commend at this time, but then it becomes such a big uh, part of everything that they do that it becomes less uh, less uh, less yeah. easy for me to celebrate. Yeah, and Ed Norton also had a, a terrible face for CGI for the Hulk. It, it's That's so funny. Too, it was just too narrow. Uh, so they, even though he wanted to be in the the suit, you know, the mocap suit or whatever, and then didn't end up being in it, they had to use a completely different face for the for the base. And that's why it doesn't look anything like Ed Norton, because his face just didn't work that well. I, I did not know that. And Ray, the Hulk eventually looks so much like Ruffalo. Hilariously, Ruffalo is who they wanted first. Well, and Ruffalo's friends with Downey from uh, their time making Zodiac together. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why when they meet somebody on tight notice, uh, Downey knows Ruffalo and they like working together. Oh, they, that's uh, fun. That was a, that was a really challenging movie to film and uh, they got through it together. Hmm. Well, that's good. I'm I'm glad <laughs> David Fincher shows up again. Yeah, David Fincher, again, a very exacting and uh, specific director. Yeah. By all accounts, it sounds like William Hurt was a very sweet man. And he's nice to hear. Yeah, he did uh, the movie in part because his kids really liked the Hulk. Uh, and he was like, I'm going to be playing. Uh, he was like, I got this role. And they're like, you're going to be playing Thunderbolt Ross. <laughs> That's uh, cute. So it was very much a, like a Raul Julia and Street Fighter situation. This chapter is also where they kind of start to lay the groundwork for discussions of crunch, VFX, and credits issues. Because the movie goes into arbitration uh, over who gets script credit. Uh, and it ends up going uh, split between Ed Norton and Zach Penn for that. Yeah, I can I wouldn't I can see never wanting to deal with any of this bullshit ever again. Yeah. And this this shit happens all the fucking time. We will get to it. I'm going to be so bad when we get to it. There's Intriguing. some stuff here that just just pisses me off. I'm going to kind of breeze past the introduction of Victoria Alonso and Luis de Esposito. They are two of the longtime producers for all of these Marvel movies. This is where they get their start here right after uh, Incredible Hulk. There's an entire chapter kind of dedicated to them and, you know, their background, how they came in and the idea of, well, now that we have the money, now that we've proven this all works, how do we build to the Avengers? Because that's what Kevin Feige is doing. He's bringing them in to help them make it. So they changed their plans from they were originally going to be making, you know, they were going to try four different approaches. We got three of the movies. 
uh, we talked about. Uh, but instead, they're like, all right, now we have to build to the Avengers. So next is Iron Man 2, Thor, and Captain America. Like I said, Ant-Man's going to be in a while. Movies that I remember um, having mixed reception at the time. I think the first Thor movie is a blast and mm-hmm. like should remain classic and in rotation. Iron Man 2, the uh, improvised style is really coming across perhaps overmuch. Mm-hmm. So... And Captain America, it feels so old-fashioned compared to where they're going with this. Yeah. Unfortunately, the book doesn't have a lot of discussion about Captain America. That would be a little sad. There's some stuff on it. Same with Thor. Iron Man 2 gets a lot more time dedicated to it and, like, the nitty-gritty. They only had two years to make this film. Jon Favreau was not a fan of that. (laughs) He was like, that's way too much. That's that's too, too much of a crunch. And sadly, is kind of the expectation for sequels. Uh, You know, you're going to produce it faster, bigger, more money for it, but faster, bigger in a shorter amount of time. Yeah, I said that twice. Faster, faster. So fast you can say fast twice. Exactly. They wanted to adapt Demon in a Bottle. That was going to be the movie. Uh, And they eventually softened a lot of that in part to make it fit with the MCU stuff that they were building to, and in part because the studio didn't really want it to be so sad. (laughs) Like, they didn't want uh, their big star to be, like, this real... to basically go off the cliff to to be at such a low point, which which is a shame, because I think that could have been a really good movie. I think, like, a darker movie... That was a little less focused on the the superhero stuff, you know, with with uh, Sam Rockwell as as Hammer and uh, Mickey Rourke as Whiplash. I think that could have been interesting. Uh, there's a whole discussion about you know Terrence Howard and Don Cheadle. Uh, they they kind of detail the the two conflicting reports on not r- reports but the conflicting stories on why Howard wasn't brought back because they said that they didn't want to give him uh, a raise. Uh, They, uh, what's it called? Because he was already so expensive. Terrence Howard. uh, And because they had already given Tony Stark a huge raise, they, uh, not Tony Stark, God, Robert Downey Jr. a huge raise. They didn't want to then pay Terrence Howard as much, even though, because he had come in with a much higher ask. Because he was- Which is- that's pretty sus to me. Yeah, it is pretty sus. Now, to be fair, I believe that they could have cut him purely on monetary reasons because Pearl Mutter is the penny pincher and they didn't see Terrence Howard as integral to the film. I'm sure I'm sure you're right. That's how they saw it. But like, I, I see them. Yeah. Apparently, he was also potentially fairly a fairly mercurial presence on set. But John Favreau never spoke badly about him other people didn't speak badly about him most of what we have seems to be speculation a lot more there's a lot of marvel uh, performers who's got to stick around and they did a lot of less savory shit yeah yeah but they bring in don Cheadle. uh he was apparently offered the job while he was at his kid's birthday party and they were like oh 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 okay take two hours <laughs> to make your choice i think uh, that was Cheadle's a not a bad casting get. moment <laughs> yeah uh, and I like I feel like before this movie, I Cheetah was really um, like a prestige guy. He kind of got mm-hmm. into that pocket. 
and this would like let him be in more commercial fun stuff again, which I think uh, is a fun mode for him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Emily Blunt would have been Black Widow. I like that better than what we got. But she had scheduling problems. Yeah, she had scheduling problems, so she couldn't do it. Sure. I mean, it happens, but that that's an interesting what if universe. I think she would have been great. Mm hmm. Gendy Tartakovsky did the storyboarding for that garden suit battle scene. Whoa. Well, yeah. Gendy Tartakovsky is probably the greatest uh, alive in his field. Mm hmm. Yeah. That's really cool. He he made it. Apparently, he was like he storyboarded it out. And he was like when he saw the final product, he's like, well, they they took what I did. He was responsible for the big tracking circle shot storyboarded. Um, He's like, they they took what I did and made it more conventional. I was like, fair. Yeah, that's what you have to do when uh, humans are trying to look like a Gendy movie. (laughs) That's true. That's true. I think he meant like the editing style, like where to cut. He was like, they cut it down to be more more conventional than like the the weirder, more fun shots. But they kept the big circle battle, which became like and that became a real uh, signature style of the whole project Mm -hmm. that comes up in every Avengers movie. Yeah, this movie broke Jon Favreau. He was like. I am never making a Marvel movie again. I'm not doing Iron Man 3. This was terrible. It was too much, too fast. And it was also why, you know, a lot of the the improv stuff didn't really work. It's because it was just they didn't have the time. And because they had to they were at the whims of so many other forces, they had to do a lot of stuff ahead of time, like. The special effects out there are certain action beats that were locked in beforehand, pre-visualization. They, at the beginning of the movie, because they needed the time to produce them, they were already in existence. So they have to, you have to kind of craft the movie around this stuff, which is hard when you're doing one, an improv thing, and two, when you want to make a movie that can change as you're going, as things, you know, don't work out or they find a better way. Right, because that's not really a movie. Yeah. Movies have, you know, movie has a script. Don't yep. mean to be controversial, but. It is. <laughs> movies need a script. We're going to take a quick step back, get into the Disney. Yeah. This is when, so Disney buys Marvel in, the chapter 10 is all about Disney buying Marvel. You know, it gets into the nitty gritty, it gets into the details. We're already kind of running a little long today, so I yeah. might, I, I think I'm going to skip some of those details. But it, long story short, they really detail in the book how it came about, the, all the, the the maneuvering to get it to to be there. And basically, Marvel had had a distribution deal with Paramount. Paramount was sending out all the films and... They were supposed to produce four films, but they'd only ended up producing three of them. Or maybe they were supposed to produce more, but they were they pr- had uh, distributed Iron Man 2, Iron Man, and Incredible Hulk. When I saw the first Avengers movie in theaters, it still had the Paramount logo before it. And I knew, because I had been reading about it, that it was a Disney-distributed movie, but Disney asked Paramount for per- uh, permission to use their logo because they thought that the Disney logo... That was too fresh. People wouldn't be ready for the Disney uh, version of Marvel. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I, I believe it. And I, Iger even says as much. People were really afraid of what Disney would do to Marvel, which I think people were afraid because of Disney's brand and not because Disney is a giant conglomerate corporation. 
well, I at the time, two the, different things. At the time, I remember uh, YouTubers were making videos about how, uh, oh no, they're gonna turn like uh, the X Men into Winnie the Pooh or something. Yeah, as if that was the insidious threat. It was, that which is a real like Gen X uh, ain't it cool news way to look at things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, not not the best way of, of approaching it. I'm trying to find the exact uh, spot. This book is so dense. This book is so dense. That's a, which surprises me a little bit. I love it. I love it. But it does make this kind of thing difficult. Sure. So this is when Ike Perlmutter sets up the creative committee. We'll get to that. We'll get to him. We'll get yeah. to the creative committee. Uh, but yeah, $115 million Disney bought out Paramount's distribution deal. Oh, just for the deal, not for... Yeah. Just for the deal. Universal still has the uh, the Incredible Hulk solo movie rights. There's also this wild breakdown of all of the theme park rights for these con- for these, these uh, characters. Because Universal has the rights to some of them east of the Mississippi, and that's why, you know... Disney can have stuff in Disneyland, but not Disney World. It's nuts. I'm that not going to get into it. It's nuts. We're running low on time. I'm going to push through. We're going to make it to the end of the phase one. We'll do it. We're going to do it. <sighs> now yeah, enter I'm... the Chris's. We now enter the Chris's. Right. This is the, age, the dawning of the age of Chris. Dawning of the age of Chris. Apparently, we almost got a, a Guillermo del Toro Thor movie. Sounds dope. There's a lot of Guillermo del Toro movies we almost got, though. That's true. I think he would have made a really good Hulk director instead. Um, that's definitely more thematically, but the Hellboy is already kind of similar to Hulk. Yeah, and that's what he did instead of Thor because yeah. there were just production timelines didn't work out. Uh, Kenneth Branagh is brought on to to do the Thor movie, and he becomes the big draw. Basically, he, because of him, they're able to get a lot of the other people onto the set. And he he's the selling point for the film, which is funny because he really pivots after that into making those sorts of movies, you know, like mm-hmm. a mainstream blockbustery type of stuff. But at the time, he was like a he was looked at as a real uh, prestigious Shakespeare guy. Yeah, which is fascinating. He still kind of is. And this movie follows that that form. Apparently, J. Michael Straczynski did the initial outline for the film, but didn't do any of the final scripts. Um, And it was based on a previous draft by Mark uh, uh, Prochosevich. And instead, they brought in uh, Ashley Edward Miller and Zach Stentz to write the movie. Uh, And I think that's a shame. Obviously, I like J. Michael Straczynski. He makes a cameo in the movie. He does. Uh, I think also... I think I think Protasevich also makes a cameo, but but JMS does definitely. No, Kevin Feige. I think it's Feige and JMS as the truckers. Yeah, JM, JMS, I know what he looks like, so I remember. Yeah. This is also where we start getting a little discussion of Sarah Haley Film, who's the casting director. She has an excellent eye for casting, uh, and, and her name pops up a whole bunch of times in the rest of the book. The last couple things I guess I want to talk about for Thor and Cap, like I said, the book doesn't really go into it a lot. They don't they don't have all that much, which is a shame. But this section then gets into a whole bunch of just name checks for who was going to play Thor. Uh, Liam Hemsworth almost got the role, but then it went to his brother, Chris. 
the right call. Uh, Chris Hemsworth has been proven to be one of our most valuable action stars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Chris, apparently he, he tried, he bulked up for the role and then he bulked up too much and they had to remake the suits because it was too tight on him and he couldn't breathe, <laughs> uh, which a shame. Uh, Captain America could have been John Krasinski if Chris Evans hadn't auditioned for the role. He he was offered it and turned it down twice because he was burnt by he was afraid that if this movie did poorly, his career was going to end. And Chris Evans is such a such a better get to me. Yeah, he uh, he was perfect for the role, but he turned it down twice. Robert Downey Jr. called him up to be like, dude, you have to take this role. You have to take this role. It is perfect for you. Uh, I'm glad things shook out the way they did. Yeah. And then there's talk of the casting of Chris Pratt. We'll get to him when we get to Guardians. Uh, And the book then also kind of gets into the uh, discussion of of the presentation of male bodies. Oh, interesting. Yeah, there's there's a whole few pages. It's not as much as I would like. But it's more than I was expecting to get on that, on how dangerous a lot of these roles have kind of become for the actors, how much pressure they feel that they have to bulk up in order to to follow, to become like, you know, big, beefy, seven packs, 13 pecs, 12 biceps kind of people. And they bring it back to toys. Whoa. People... They, they basically are like Disney and the Marvel machine is kind of pushing their actors to be more toyetic, to look more like the toys. And with a toy, you don't have to worry about real proportions. With people, you do. But we've come to kind of try and make the people more toy-like on the screen so that they are closer to what they look like when they're sold on the shelves. Well, that's all insane. And I also, I feel like... um as these uh, guys are bulking up, we're getting like more of their bodies, but less of their sexuality. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Real interesting uh, the, that things went the way they did. Mm-hmm. So I'm skipping chapter 12 for now. What's chapter 12 on? The Marvel writing program. We will get back to that, but I kind of want to wrap up phase one first. Sure. With let's talk the Avengers. Yeah, directed by Mr. Joss Whedon. Mr. Joss Whedon himself. This one is a bit spicy. This was originally written by Zach Penn. Again. (laughs) Once again, shunted off when they hire Joss Whedon, because he's a writer-director. And they go into litigation over, you know, who did what. Uh, Joss apparently hated Zach Penn's script. And supposedly rewrote chunks of it. And like his fingerprints are all over the script. There's there's no denying that. Absolutely. But Zach Penn eventually ends up getting just like a, a story by credit. He doesn't get any script credit, which affects his pay. Oh, uh, that's so out, petty. Out of the, that's that's the, all of this like really rankles is, you know, they're not getting paid properly because of this. Whether or not how much of the movie ended up from Zach Penn's version and how much from Joss Whedon's, it it sucks that the the this is how it, the industry works. That's true, and but I do think it's really interesting because Whedon's style becomes the def- Whedon had been so countercultural up until this point. 
now that he is becoming monocultural because Disney's entire brand is going off of Whedon's brand. Mm hmm. And I suppose the later expose about uh, his hypocrisies in terms of the values that that movie show also interestingly mirror Disney's hypocrisies where they yeah. uh, pur- purport to uh, care more about uh, it, uh, social justice issues than uh, they act towards. Mm hmm. Exactly. And the book gets into that at the beginning. I kind of didn't want to get into it because we've talked about it before. Sure. Uh, and on this I very podcast this episode would run very long. <laughs> But this was the 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 movie, one of the first movies that has the really has scenes that had to happen because they were pre-made, that they were being made early, early, early on uh, in the pre-visualization stage. Uh, You know, Mark Ruffalo comes back to the role. They cast him because they think he's going to be perfect. This is where Mike Sam Jackson is made to run. He was so bad. He called. He called Joss. He was like. He called Joss Whedon a motherfucker for that. Uh, well, it doesn't. I one thing I know about Mr. Samuel L. Jackson is it doesn't take over much to make him call someone a motherfucker. That's true. the The book characterizes it as slightly, slightly, maybe endearing is the wrong word, but like an accepting move, not like actually done in anger. Sure, and uh, you know he was proven to be a bit of a motherfucker. So, yeah, a lot of this chapter also gets into Perlmutter and why he was putting the kibosh on women in Marvel and also in the toy lines. There was a whole debacle over, not Scarlet Witch, uh, over Black Widow not appearing in, in on merch, like kind of having one toy and nothing else. Ike, he's the reason. He says that women don't buy toys. And they end up overcorrecting so much to uh, I think one of the reasons why they put uh, their progressive agenda so at the forefront is because they were so happy to be out from the uh, under the yoke of Perlmutter's just like weird, insane bigotry where he was leaving money on the table rather than acknowledge your market towards people he didn't like. Mm hmm. Correct. Yeah. But Joss Whedon it talks a little bit about the, they have interviews with him here and he was like he didn't enjoy the process of making the Avengers. But at the by the end, it's a hit and it quite literally changes the industry yeah and i kind of want to wrap this episode up by talking about your experience with the avengers because mine and I'll, i'll follow it up with mine i was very excited for the avengers i'd already liked all the marvel movies up until this point and like as a marvel comics friend i was the one dragging all my friends to see the earlier mcu movies and they were liking them Mm-hmm. Um, I remember after the first Captain America movie that the post credit scene was just a trailer for the Avengers and I was freaking out. I loved Hiddleston as Loki so much and I was a huge Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan. I see the Avengers with my college friends and it's like a hoot. We have a great time. We're cheering. We say it's the best movie ever. And then I remember my brother, uh, who normally doesn't go for this sort of thing, was just like, do you want to go see the Avengers movie with me? And I was just like... Holy shit. Yeah, I would. And uh, to the date, that is one of the only times he has uh, surprised me in that way. Usually we just see stuff he wants to see. Mm -hmm. I went back to that movie so many times. It was so funny. There were so many lines we were quoting. This was just like the new Star Wars. This was the new movie where every bit of minutia and trivia and lore was going to be part of the uh, holy nerd canon. And uh, everything was going to be like this now. And we were so excited. We felt like uh, our day had finally come. Yeah. It was it it felt monumental. I remember 
being in the theaters for Captain America. I saw it with with my mom and my brother, uh, and we we saw it, we watched it, and we got to the to the end, and I was like, "They're making an Avengers movie." <laughs> I can't believe it. And I, my mom was so excited. My brother was excited. My dad, we were all really excited for this movie. All be, and like we, we didn't even know what it could be about, what it could be like. And then we saw it in theaters. And again, I think I saw it four times in the first. Yeah, I think I, four times month. sounds about right for me too. Yeah, in theaters, just in theaters. And I've seen it more times since oh yeah just for the rest of college uh or i guess that movie came out shortly after college but we were watching all the marvel movies like uh hungover on a sunday morning Mm -hmm. yeah so it it, it was really filling that spot it's kind it's hard if you're coming to this now if you were not there which is weird to say but if you weren't there it's hard to understate how big this movie was it's like look when you look back at footage for me of the first star wars film and you see the news stories and you see people lined up talking about how they've seen this movie seven times and it's been out for seven days and they stood online for two hours to get a ticket to see shout times it wasn't quite like that but it had that same feeling of Everyone is seeing this film. The theaters were packed. It was the first movie, I think, to make over a billion dollars. No, Avatar had done so uh, oh, shortly, right. a couple of years earlier. Uh, and I have I, I could do an entire episode just about Avatar's box office. Um, but it, I remember something that got said a lot on the news and just like in my social circles was that um, – this you, the, there's way too much money coming into this movie for it to just be a niche nerd thing. Everybody is going. Everybody is going with their whole family. Everyone is going mm-hmm. multiple times. Yeah, and it, you could feel that it, early early showings had the entire audience erupting in laughter, sniffling. You go back and you know eventually you had the repeat people, and the theater would just be. Something would happen. The one-liner would be coming up. Everyone would call it out at the screen. It was yeah, like, that like it's Rocky Horror. Mm-hmm. The the scene where Hulk smashes Loki on the floor. Every time I saw that, it got a huge laugh out of the audience. The laugh was so long and sustained. I missed the line at least twice afterwards because everyone was so loud we couldn't hear it. I remember uh, that's my secret. I'm always angry, getting a mm-hmm. huge cheer like four times in the theater. Yep. The the big shot that circles all of the Avengers as they land and they all grab their their or they strike their individual poses. Another uh, spinning around in a circle shot. Oh yeah, big shot. Tony Stark eating all of his strange candies that he hit around the set. That was always fun, and you know. The death of Coulson, that was yeah, that got that got me. That got everyone, right? And so, it all seems so obvious now. But like, yeah, at the time, uh, it was just like it felt flawless in this way that everything was always so flawed. Yeah, and I'm sure, as with everything, you go back and you, you can really critically reevaluate it. I haven't seen it 
recently oh, I mean, enough to do that. One of the uh, most repeated lines is uh, just like using like a derogatory sexist term in, that, in a way that makes you sound intellectual. And I feel like that oh, actually yeah. uh, kind of uh, summarizes Whedon's entire aesthetic that's taken yeah. the by fire at this point is yep. um, he uh, he's so excited to show the world how smart and well read and big his vocabulary is that he doesn't realize uh, that he uh, is continuing to like speak the quiet part out loud at some of his uh, bad impulses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you said, we've, we've talked about this quite a bit on the show. Yeah. So I think that's where we'll, we'll leave this episode. That's right. This is a two parter. Oh my we God. St- just like an MCU it up movie. On you. <laughs> Jane and Elias will return in podcast part two. Part two. Thank you for joining us here. Jaina, do you want to do the regular en- ending or do we want to just do the credits? We can do the regular ending. I mean, I am still a recluse, but you can find me on this podcast feed and sometimes on Letterboxd and other platforms as Rambling Moose. Elias, can you be found as well? I can be found maybe somewhere at Quetzal-ish, Q-U-E-T-Z-E-L-I-S-H. It is my superhero name. Uh, It might show up on a social media platform at some point, but I don't really like being there. (laughs) And... I, you can also email me at erosner at multiversitycomics.com where I am still writing and we are still podcasting. And this episode was edited by Livian Safir. Our theme music is Excelsior by Carol Romo. And we'll see you again after the snap. Thank you.